1: Good morning again, Redemption Church. It's good to worship with you this morning. We have a, a special morning. We have a baptism this morning, which is always really exciting. Um, but I, I wonder why you're here. It's a beautiful Sunday morning following what's been, what can only be described as a pretty apocalyptic summer. <laughs> um, a lot of your friends are out on a patio right now enjoying brunch, Maybe it would be better to go for a nice walk in the park with our dogs, or perhaps go for a bike ride or a jog. Maybe it would be better to just sit in your backyard and bask in the beauty of God's creation. And yet, there's something in you that takes Jesus seriously enough that has brought you here to this place this morning. Something that finds this crucified Jewish Messiah compelling. So much so that you've come here, maybe against your best judgment. You find yourself here, maybe looking out the windows going, wait, why am I here? That's a great question. (laughs) But I think that this Messiah, I think that this Jesus, I think that our text this morning reminds us as to why we're here, because we need to be. So uh, sinner is a loaded word. It carries with it centuries of baggage um, and it has so often been weaponized and been used uh, to leverage as power against other people. It's been used to other, it's been used to identify outsiders and insiders um, and we see this very clearly in the Pharisee in our story today. As Jesus tells this parable, he says that the Pharisee stood and began praying This in regard to himself. God, thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, crooked, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. We might summarize the Pharisees' words by saying this. God, thank you that I am not a sinner. I wonder if this is not often our stance. Maybe we would never say this out loud. Maybe we would never consciously acknowledge that. Maybe that phrase, thank God, thank you that I am not a sinner, has never actually come to uh, the forefront of our minds. But I wonder if we aren't sometimes tempted to think that we have somehow figured it out. That we are not like those people over there, whoever your those people are that your better theology or your better political stance or your better ethnicity or your better socioeconomic place or your better education or your better zip code or your whatever has somehow given you what you need in the presence of God, that you've got it figured out. While my guess is that none of us would readily see themselves or relate to the Pharisee in this story, this is precisely the character that Jesus is inviting us to compare ourselves to. The fact that you are here on a Sunday morning means that most of you are at least somewhat religious. And if you weren't before, well, sorry. (laughs) You were at least dabbling in a little bit of religion this morning. And the religious folk who show up to church when others have far better things to do with their time, the Pharisee is the warning to each one of us, the one that we will be tempted to become. So sin has become like a fairly off-limit word in some circles. You start throwing around the word sinner and we're flirting with barbaric language in 2023. Yet here we find Jesus putting it on the words of the hero of the parable. The point of Jesus' story being that we would do well to actually consider ourselves the least of these, to actually claim that we ourselves are sinners. And yet I imagine a number of us are hesitant to label ourselves as sinners, at least in a direct and tangible way. We might put like a blanket statement on, like, yeah, I'm a sinner because we're all sinners. But in real practical earthly-like naming, here are the things that I participate in. We're hesitant to label ourselves as sinners. The Jesuit artist, pacifist, and activist priest Daniel Berrigan once said, uh, sarcastically said, that when the obituary for our age has been written, it will tell all future generations that our age died of nothing more serious than moral acne. Hemorrhoids of the spirit. Bet you didn't expect to hear that word from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Hemorrhoids of the spirit. An inconvenient but non-life-threatening blight. So that sinner has become this like, ah, I've got some weird hangups or I've got some minor inconveniences or maybe I've got a peculiar personality and yet Jesus is gonna excuse those things and it will be fine. The Catholic priest and theologian Ronald Rollheiser tells the story of a woman who after coming to him and sitting in the confessional booth, confessing some very serious things Um, They leave, and as they're discussing, she says, what would you call those things? My neurosis, my woundedness, my struggle areas, my immaturities. What would you call those things? My tendency towards selfishness. The Catholic priest turns to her with a little bit of disbelief, like, are you actually asking the question? Do you really want me to answer you? Because what were we just doing? And he kind of half-jokingly answered, call them sin, but then he goes on to say, afford to them and to yourself the dignity of a rich and timeless symbol, sin. These are not minor hang-ups. These are not minor improprieties. These are not minor missteps. His point was that we somehow trivialize the deep wounds of our humanness that we forget or have somehow let become trite. Paul's rejoinder to us that the wages of sin is not hell. It is not some sort of weird punishment. It is not simply like, ah, maybe things will go worse for you. The wages of sin is death. And my question to you today, friends, is will you one day die? Because according to the New Testament, that means your death points to you the the direction that you in fact are among those who would consider themselves sinners. Because die we will. And our sin is deeply true of us as, as it is deeply true of every human being throughout all of history. And Jesus warns us against looking around at the rest of humanity and saying, whew, thank goodness I'm not like them. And our trivialization of sin, our hemorrhoids of the spirit, shed light on our deeper wounds and perhaps a reality that we're not quite comfortable or ready to recognize, which is that we are deeply needy and helpless. As first century Americans, that's an incredibly uncomfortable theology. (laughs) But if you'll stick with me for a moment, what I want to show you is that Jesus is actually inviting you to embrace that reality because at the other side of it, you will find a God who is absolutely and utterly for you and who loves you in your neediness and in your helplessness. It is no accident that Luke follows this story of Jesus telling this parable with the story of Jesus gathering in the children. The whole point of that story is not, hey, you should be innocent and naive. The whole point of the story is that children in the first century Judaism, here's the hierarchy in that world. It goes men, women, children, you don't produce anything. All you do is eat. All you do is take. You're really needy. You don't really offer much. You're annoying. You're inconvenient. You're all the things that we don't really want in our life. And Jesus says, That's who I'm here for. That's who will inherit the kingdom of God. It is the needy, non productive, helpless ones. And so, are you self sufficient? Are you going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and amuse the God of the universe today? Are you going to come like a child and sit in the lap of your creator as you are and allow yourself to be loved? That's the question that stands before us. Because as Jesus warmly welcomes and receives these little children, Jesus also warmly welcomes and receives sinners. And it is only, in fact, in our weakness and our neediness and our sin that Jesus can encounter and heal us. So there's a a famous, it's probably the theology that most of you grew up with. It's the theology that I grew up with and and most of which I still hold to. It's the, the Lutheran reformed Calvinist theology that says God is a judge and that we are standing today in the courtroom of God and the question is, what do you have to bring? What will God's judgment upon you bring? And yet when Jesus shows up and Jesus says, hey, I am the clearest and the fullest and the most most perfect picture of the revelation of God the Father that this world will ever see, what does he show us? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Does anyone know what the next verse says? For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but to save it. God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to rescue it. And the primary image that Jesus has of our gathering here is not one of a courtroom, but one of a hospital. And Jesus reveals himself as the full revelation of God, not as a judge, but as the great physician not as the one who condemns us to death, but the one who raises us from death into life. He is the Resurrector. Pope Francis, and we're hitting all the, all the Catholic theologians today. I've been on a Catholic roll the last couple of weeks, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. Um, Pope Francis rightly captures it this way when he says this, sin is more than a stain. And I wonder if we have sometimes thought of sin this way. It is is a stain. It is a blight against our reputation. It is a dirt that we simply need to be washed from. He goes on to say, sin is a wound. It needs to be treated and healed. Do we believe that the God of the universe died to overcome our personality flaws? are our bad habits or our poor traffic violations or laws or whatever, y'all are weird on the highways, our petty indiscretions, our bad manners, our misbehaviors, our missteps, our mistakes. Is this the extent of God's redemption of the cosmos? That you're forgiven because you didn't say thank you? You were rude that one time to your waiter, although don't be rude to your waiter. No, sin is not petty. And our taking our ranks among those who would call themselves sinners is no minor diagnosis. To be clear, what the tax collector is confessing is I acknowledge that I am outside of your community, God, that I have no place in your holy people, God, and I am casting myself onto your mercy that you would do something about that fact, Our sin is the fracturing of wholeness and peace. It is the violation of Shalom. And I can't help but thinking of Israel in this moment in 2023 as bombs and grenades and World War III seems to be on the brink. The God of peace stands and offers uh, the extension of his love and his grace and his peace to the world. And it is not through guns. It is not through missiles. It is not through retribution. It is through a crucified God. A God who has given his life for the life of others, not a God who has taken the lives away. And there is something deeply wounded about our humanity that leads to our death. And sin is not only the unmaking of the cosmos, it is actually the unmaking of ourselves. So that Jesus is not just restoring the world, he is not just forgiving you of doing bad things, he is changing your very nature. The Pope goes on to say, right, so sin is more than a stain. Sin is a wound that needs to be treated and healed. The place where my encounter with the mercy of Jesus takes place is my sin. The place where my encounter with the mercy of Jesus takes place is my sin. It is the intersection of encountering forgiveness, of encountering healing when you open up yourself as you really, truly, actually are to God. There's like a fancy word in the church for this. It's called confession. See, I tricked you. You thought, oh, wow, you're with me. You're tracking. And I say confession. You're like, oh, we're just talking about confession this morning. Is that what this is? But without sin, we have no need of Jesus. We're able to stand before God just like the Pharisees stood before God. And we could rather just go to brunch. Right? There's no need of healing. We don't really have anything that wrong with us. There's not much of a need here for us, and we could all go have some pancakes and sip some mimosas and have a much more enjoyable time. Um, I can talk to you all there if you want. That sounds fun. But my question is, would we find Jesus at brunch? Would we find Jesus among the social or the, uh, the self righteous? Would we find Jesus among those who don't see any need for Jesus? Or would we find Jesus among the sinners? And I ask this question because um, when we look throughout the New Testament, Jesus is pretty emphatically uniting himself to the sinners and pretty emphatically opposing himself to the self righteous, usually the religious elite. Jesus' place is with the sinner, it's with the poor the cursed, the needy, the ostracized. And if we are not that, then he is not here. Reflecting on his encounter with his confessing parishioner, the one who is reluctant to name her ailments as sin, Rollheiser goes on to say this, it's when we humbly and simply own our sin that we take our place among God's broken. The ones that Jesus actually came to save and what we get in return for exposing our brokenness, our woundedness, our failure to God is the chance to start again, to be made new, to be healed. And ultimately, and really, and most importantly, it allows us to actually, really, and finally receive love. In just a few moments, um, we're going to have someone stand up among us and proclaim this very thing. Our friend Jeff is going to eagerly step into the waters of baptism and in this act proclaim, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's in these waters of baptism that we encounter and proclaim that God has met the sinner and has made them new. Renewal, rebirth, resurrection, Jeff will go into the waters and enter into the cursed death of Jesus, a death which are the wages of Jeff's sin. And in Christ and by Christ's spirit will come out of the waters a new creature, a new humanity participating in Jesus' resurrection. Jeff will come out of the water to walk into a newness of life into the kingdom of God's beloved, a kingdom that is filled with sinners made whole. And so if baptism is anything, it is confession. Our admission that we've done wrong, that we have participated in the destruction of shalom in our world and in our own souls and in our own households and in our closest relationships. But it's also a confession that we are victims of sin as well and we are powerless to stop it that a simple five steps to making better decisions is not going to solve our problem. Jesus tells us this this way. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call righteous people to repentance, but sinners. And so one of the things that I'm going to invite each and every one of us to do today is to actually participate in Jeff's baptism. In just a few moments, Jeff's going to come up. We're going to step down and I'm going to invite you all to come up and we're going to actually stand around the baptismal font, which is really just a water trough. (laughs) And we'll be provided with an opportunity to reflect and remember our own baptisms. Our own confession of our need for Jesus our own entering into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our own clinging to the reality that God will make us whole one day. If you've never been baptized and you're interested in baptism, let's talk. It's always a good day to get baptized. It's always a good day to receive the forgiveness and grace of the great physician. So I want to encourage us today to regularly count ourselves as sinners. I want us to be a church for sinners, a church where people who feel uncomfortable in church can actually feel comfortable in church, a church where people who recognize that they're not the only ones with stuff because everyone else around them puts on really nice masks. Right, and this is not to say that we should just wallow in our sin, um, But as a religious professional, (laughs) I've found that people claiming to follow Jesus are really, really, really quick to publicly point the finger at other people's sin and really, really, really slow to publicly point the finger at their own sin. And Jesus is inviting us to be more like the tax collector and less like the Pharisee if we want to be religious. And if you are wondering what I'm talking about, just give a quick scroll through Facebook and it'll all be clear. I also want to acknowledge that many of us have been harmed by some of the language that I'm using today, and I'm hoping that some of what we're talking about can reframe it for you in some ways. You've been told that what this means is you're a piece of garbage, that you're a filthy rag. And do you know what the original Hebrew is for that? that you are nothing more than trash in God's eyes, that you are a spider being hung over the licking flames of God's eternal wrath. And man, he just look he's looking for a reason. I know people that are in therapy because of that theology, but I want to invite you just to take a couple steps back. And I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at John 3, 16. Is that really what God thinks of you? If if that were true, would God have not sent the world to hell? Would God not have just done the flood all over again and been like, I'm done with this? No, no, no. instead, God's position towards you as sinner is to relentlessly follow you into your sin, even into the depths of death, even into the depths of hell itself, grab you and raise you back up to new life. God is for you, sinner, God is with you. God is trying to invite you into newness of life. I think confession opens us up to being loved. So I've shared with you all a little bit about my own, like, I recognize it's hard for me to acknowledge my, uh, it's hard for me to receive love. I find myself even even knowing that I find myself trying to earn God's love. And the idea, like when I really actually sit and meditate on it, it's really, really hard to wrap my head around the fact that God would love me as I am before I fix all my stuff. And so what I do is instead I think, well, I've got to fix all my stuff because I am a sinner and I've got some stuff and I've got to fix it all so that God can love me. And I spend so much of my life chasing fixing myself so that I can earn God's love. And Jesus is standing there going, do you not understand what I've done for you? Do you not understand who I am? Do you not understand what I'm inviting you into? Will you let me be the healer here? Like I'm, I'm laying on the table in the ER with blood gushing out and I'm trying to take the scalpel from the surgeon. You're like, no, no, I got this. Let me fix it first so that you can then give me the, the healing and the medicine that I need, Right. What confession allows us to do is be us, the real us, the sometimes like gross and ugly us, but the deeply beloved us. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to be someone else. You don't have to put on a mask. So the language um, surrounding the word hypocrite that is thrown around No one wants to be a hypocrite, right? If you're in church, don't be a hypocrite. That is like the word to accuse someone of. I find this really fascinating. The language uh, hypocrite was actually literally just the word for actor. People running around pretending to be something they're not, pretending to be someone they're not. Jesus is saying, hey, you don't have to act anymore. I don't need you to act for me. I see you. I know you. And I love you. And we're then invited to step into healing. When we're real, when we open up to the fact that we are sinners and that we are the walking wounded in need of healing, we open ourselves up to the love of God. We open ourselves up to the very healing that we're trying to like fix or do on our own. Many of us have been told that God is angry with you. Yet Jesus shows us very clearly that God deeply loves you. We've been told that God is going to destroy you. And yet Jesus shows us very clearly that God himself is willing to be destroyed for you. Jesus shows us that God is actually and really no asterisks, no strings attached for sinners. And so I willingly and readily and enthusiastically own up to that and count myself among them. And so the reality of being real with God and with one another is that rather than groveling like worms who are begging for God's mercy, actually the opposite starts to happen. We recognize that who and what we are as we are is opened up to the love of God and that while we are broken in a number of ways, Jesus has come to the broken for the sake of the broken. This means that you can actually and really be yourself because the actual and real you is deeply loved by God. And Jesus' parable shows us that when we open up to our shortcomings, our humanity, the fact that, yes, we are sinners and we will wound one another and other people, we open ourselves up to God's love and God's healing. And recognizing our need, yes, God meets us and begins to meet that need with God's whole self, given in death to restore and redeem us as beloved children. So I wanna give you a couple of practical caveats here and like we're done, my notes are done. So this is all like really actually the end, I promise. I apparently have a habit of telling you I'm almost done when I'm not actually almost done. <laughs> no no <laughs> preacher would ever do a, such a thing. So this has gone in weird ways in churches and I wanna be very careful about this What I'm not saying here this morning is that you need to go tell every single person your business. It was a very awkward lunch I had once like 20 years ago at a Chili's. We sat down with a group of strangers who were all like Christians and we knew that and and someone started opening up to their addiction to pornography. I'm like, dude, you don't know any of these people, especially the girl you're sitting right next to. This is super awkward and weird. Um, Don't do that. I don't think you need to do that. I'm not saying that that is what we're talking about here. There's a whole other ditch that we can fall in, which is where we tell no one anything. And we do our communal confessions together every Sunday and we go, well, that's it, we're good, right? I want to invite you to actually really be known by other people in this community. That doesn't mean everyone in this community needs to know all of your stuff, but I want to invite you to allow someone in your life and hopefully in this community to know all of your stuff. Someone that you feel safe enough to say, hey, here's what I'm really struggling with. Here's what I did. Here's what I'm tempted to do. I just am so discouraged, so down, so whatever, and you can actually really be real. So there's like a whole science behind this with Dunbar. I'll let you Google it. Um, but I would encourage you, like practically, because so there's a lot of y'all in here that are numbers people, two to five people who know you deeply, really, authentically know you. You don't need 60 people to know all your stuff. We're not doing open mic confession night. It's the quickest way to kill a church. <laughs> But can I acknowledge that for most of us, our tendency is to not tell everyone everything. For most of us, our tendency is to not feel safe sharing anything. So cultivate those relationships where you can actually do that. Our hub groups are a great place for that to happen. Again, there's, I don't know, any hub group has 8 to 15 people in it. That doesn't mean all 8 to 15 people need to hear every single thing. But is there someone in there you could begin to build a relationship with to open up about who you really
0: are and what you're struggling with? thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about us get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday then go to redemptionhou.com and please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are we hope to hear from you soon